the following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Listen to the words of Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray together. O great and mighty God, we come before you this day, gathered as your people, gathered in this place at this time, in this moment, simply to worship you. We've come out of the busyness and the chaotic nature of our lives during the week, away from work and away from all of the other activities that crowd out our schedules. And we've come here this morning simply to do what the psalmist calls us to, to be still and to be quiet for a few moments and to be reminded that you are God and that you sit on a throne that is high and exalted above this earth, above the nations of this earth, above the problems and pains and challenges of this earth, you sit enthroned and you are sovereign over all things. Lord, when we look around ourselves, when we watch the news, when we look at Facebook, we can't help but remember that the nations truly rage and that kingdoms totter and that chaos ensues in the nations all around. There is a temptation, Lord, for us to be drawn in to the fears and the anxieties of our culture. Remind us, O God, that you call us away from such things. That you call us to lift our eyes away from the things of this world and to lift them up towards you. To remember that we are not to be in we are not to be of this world, but we simply are placed in it as ambassadors for you. Our citizenship is in heaven this morning because we know you and we believed upon you by faith through the blood of your son, Jesus. And so we come as citizens of earth temporarily, but as citizens of heaven forever. And we gather around the throne room of our king this day and we lift up our eyes toward you. And we declare that you are mighty and you are great and you are above all things. 
And you are a king before whom we submit our very lives. Every thought, every action, every deed. And when we do such things, Lord, you've promised us that you become for us a refuge. You provide for us strength. You become for us a a help that's present in every trouble. And we rejoice in that this morning, Lord. We rejoice that we can come before you without fear and without anxiety because you have loved us with an everlasting love. You have given your very Son to die in our place. And you receive us this moment, this morning, and the worship that we offer to you as a loving Father received his own children. And we've come to this place this morning, gathered from different homes, from different walks of life, having had very different experiences even this week. And we come before you bringing our our griefs and our anxieties and our troubles and our pains, and we lay them at your feet. And we know that you are exalted above all things, and we pray that you would speak into our hearts this morning peace and comfort. That you would meet the needs of every heart that's in this room and every family in this room. That you would care for us deeply and personally. We're grateful for the fellowship we have with one another. We're grateful for the word that you've given us, your Holy Bible. And we're grateful for the opportunity to open it in a few moments and to study what you have to speak to us today through the pen of Peter long ago and through the mouth of our pastor who has prepared this morning to speak. Meet us in these moments, Lord. You've drawn us here for a reason, because you desire to speak to us. Give us ears that would hear your voice this morning. Give us hearts that would be open to apply it to the very real-life situations in which we live. May we walk away from our worship of you this morning with greater love for you, with a greater passion to walk in obedience to your word. But you must do these things in us by your spirit. And so we pray for it this morning in Christ's name. Amen. I found myself not able to talk. I found myself in recent years getting more and more frustrated and even angry over our present cultural situation, the present moral climate, um, particularly where I live in the United States of America. And it's not godly that I would get angry with what's going on, so that's confusing to me as well. Then, on top of it, I get angry with, I get angry with the sliding down the slippery slope that our uh, nation is doing and, and then I get angry with myself for getting angry that I can't just turn it over to God and know he's sovereignly in control of all this mess pray about it talk to my wife about it pray with her about it It's a painful thing to see the culture implode and to have family members that are just 
floating right along with it. People you love. And we know if you ever, if, if we ever knew, we know now for sure, politics isn't the answer. Politics will save us from nothing. And nobody's immune to this. And here I am, 61 years of age, just realizing the truth of this matter, that as the moral culture in my land continues to decline, as it inevitably will, I am naturally becoming more separated from it. And it's taken uh, halfway through the fourth chapter of First Peter for me to get it. That I'm an alien too. And as the culture declines, I become more and more alienated, as aliens do. And in many ways, it's that sinful struggle with the world that causes the confusion and the pain and the hurt. So if you're like me, God forbid that you are, but if you're like me, we believers will become more and more alienated from this world. And Peter tells us how in community we're to live so that we can make it. So that we can make it when it's time to go home. So that we can make it when Christ comes again. Turn to 1 Peter 4. Verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Well, haven't you thought that? The end must be near. And it could be quite possibly these people that Peter's writing this letter to 2,000 years ago are thinking the same thing. Boy, you look around us, it looks like the end is near. And here we are 2,000 years later. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything... God may be glorified in everything. Think about that. In everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We began with part run of this passage, this text, this sermon, on January 8th. Normally when you have a part one and a part two of a sermon, 
they're back to back. And you've had two sermons in between part one. I apologize for that lack of continuity. It was my dad's fault. I can blame him now. But grateful for Pastor Greg stepping in when I couldn't. So a bit of an overview from part one, which connects and is important. This is the final um, final passage of Scripture in this section that began actually in 2 verse 11. Turn back there where he says, and, and these verses connect with these first couple of verses. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that uh, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So there, there's some agreement and thought in, in this passage and the opening passage of this section. Um, staying away from evil, living a godly life, results in glory to God with the end of it all in view of us. And then that doxology at the end that I just read for you, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. That's sort of the period on the, or the exclamation mark on the, on the end of that, this particular section. You also know it's a section because of verse, two, uh, verse 11 of chapter 2 begins with beloved. And the next verse, the verse we'll look at next week, begins with beloved. And so it's clearly the end of a particular section. Jay, I, 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 don't, I can't even see who's back there. Paul, there's, turn my mic down just a little bit. It's got a little ring up here, which you can't hear, but I can throughout the New Testament, as we see here as well, the future is the basis for how Christians are to live. The end of all things is at hand, he tells these folks and us. What you believe about the future shapes how you live today. So the end of all things is at hand. So here's some commands for you. With the end in view. What does he mean by the end? Is it imminent? Is he saying that? I've heard people say that the New Testament writers thought that Jesus was coming any moment. It's probably not true. But it has been 2,000 years. He couldn't have meant that either. The end is at hand. Oh, that's 2,000 years away. It's not the case. We know he doesn't know when the end is near because in Acts 1, 6, and 7, Jesus, uh, we read, So when they had come together, they asked him, Jesus, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And Peter was there. He knows he's not supposed to know. Uh, Karen Job says, the consummation of the kingdom of God will involve the return of Christ. The end of history as we know it, because those events are necessary for God to achieve his telos. That's, that's the, the word for end, the end. 
the redemption of humanity. So, the end is the consummation of this final stage of this redemptive process. That definition is reflected also in 1 Peter 1.20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, what was made manifest in the last times. In the last times for the sake of you. That period of time that begins with the coming of the Messiah and it ends with the second coming. This is what he's talking about. It's the consummation of that particular period. And, 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 and the knowledge of that period is old. It's been going on a lot longer than 2,000 years. Peter, in his first sermon in Acts 2, verses 16 through 18. But this is what was uttered by the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. So Joel's talking about these last times, the same last times that Peter said when he says the end of all things is at hand. Joel is talking about that five, six hundred years before Peter. And then Peter's preaching this message and he's saying, oh yeah, those last times that Joel was talking about, we're in it now here in Acts 2. That's what's happening here, the last days. He said this so that these readers and you and myself would know that we're living in the last stage of a process that was initiated by God and the outcome is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's the guarantee we have. And because of this truth... We're living near the consummation of these last days. Our behavior must reflect that truth. Back in the first part of chapter 4, when we went through verses 3 through 6, Peter tells us what not to do for the time that is past suffices, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. They, the Gentiles want to live in sensuality and passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So he, he tells us what not to do. But in this entire letter, there are some times when he tells us what not to do. But more importantly, Peter tells us what we should be doing Focusing on what we should not be doing just leads to legalism. More often, fortunately, in this letter, he tells us what we should be doing. He even tells us in this letter, this section here that we look at today, what we should be doing. And we talk about what the church is called to do, the church is commanded to do. In God's Word, the church is commanded to do here living in the last times. And I don't think we feel the weight of our disobedience. We get up here and we preach, and here's what Peter commands. It's the Word of God. 
and we don't do it. And I just don't think we feel the weight of our disobedience. We're commanded to do it all. How's he in that? For the glory of God. The end of all things is the basis of four these four points of instruction that he gives us. Our exhortation, our those are nice words. They're just say commands. These are commands. These are imperative commands for us. Describes the practice of the Christian community in these last times, in these last days. With the end being near, how do we live? So he says, think right so you can pray. Saw that in verse 7. Love one another. Show hospitality. Serve one another. And Peter's telling us nobody, nobody's going to escape the finality of God's redemptive plan. God's the final redemptive process that will save some and condemn others. Nobody's going to escape it. So church, this is how you live as we move toward it. Think right so you can pray. The end of all things is a hand be self-controlled and sober-minded. This will touch everybody. And it may be hard. And so think rightly about these things. And rather than act out of confusion in the midst of all this chaos in regard to spiritual things, we must be clear-minded, sober-minded. We must make mental preparation. I read that first in 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Prepare your minds for action. He says at the beginning of this letter. So Peter, at the very beginning of this text, the end is near. And so you need to have right thinking. You need to have clear thinking. You need to be sober-minded. And that's going to result in evangelism? Nope. That's going to result in more learning for the church. That's going to result in better giving. You're going to be better at planning and organizing and creating programs. Think clear-minded about these things. No. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayer. Your prayer is actually plural. Prayer. Priority one. As far as the Christian community is concerned, right thinking about the last days, right thinking about the future, will result in prayers. Godly prayers. Expectant prayers. You might think he'd say, since they're, getting, they're facing persecution and probably getting ready to face further persecution, he'd say, be clear-minded about how to make a defense for yourself when the persecution comes. But he doesn't say that. His first concern is prayer. That's the many part one. Verse eight. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Love. We looked um, when 
on January 8th. I looked at this passage in Matthew 24 when Jesus is speaking to his disciples. In Matthew 24:12, he says, And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Peter says, That's not to happen. Well, as lawlessness increases, don't let your love grow cold. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Above all, it's a priority. Be intentional about it. Make it important. All of these things, love, our behavior, our hospitality, our service, all these things. Be intentional. Be serious about them. I don't know where I got this quote, but it's a great quote. I wish it came from me. Casual Christians create casualties. Because the end of all things is near, persist in your love. I see some of you writing, and you should be writing that in your Bible somewhere. Casual Christians create casualties. And then write, Pastor Frank did not make it up, but he said it. As things get harder in this life and this world, we will need each other more. But we will also sin against each other more. And love is the only thing that we have that will keep us from sinning against each other. It's to be an earnest love. It's the second time Peter commands that. The first time was in chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And do it above all, he says here. Make earnest love a number one priority. Earnest love is one that's intensely pursued. There's an emotional intensity in that love. It persists despite all the difficulties. It persists despite all the trials. It's reminiscent of Paul's words in Colossians 3. Verse 12 and following, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, meekness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's the same message. And maybe even this reflects the words of Jesus in Matthew 22. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It's the great and first commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Then he says, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Most commentators, 
theologians say this is a reference to Proverbs 10.12. Proverbs 10.12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. And to cover sin, it doesn't mean to, to... I love you and so I'm going to ignore your sin. Or like churches are really good at that noise. As churches are really good at doing, we've got sin in our church, so let's just sweep it under the rug. What does he mean by that then? Does it still work? Okay. Well, let's go back over the entire proverb. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So if hatred is the antonym to love, then maybe there's a comparison with the rest of the words. Stirs up strife, covers all offenses. Hate stirs something up. Love keeps peace. Love creates an atmosphere of forgiveness and forbearance. It doesn't allow wrongs done in the body to cause confusion and and, and strife. Clement of Rome wrote a letter to the Corinthians and he explains this covering love as love that endures everything is long-suffering to the last. In other words, love breaks that slippery decline into hard feelings and hatred and strife. N.D.J. White. I couldn't even find his first name, but I found the quote. This is how one acts when under control of such love. When a private personal injury has been done to him as though nothing has occurred. In this way, by simply ignoring the unkind act or the insulting word, he brings the evil thing to an end. It dies and leaves no seed. This consideration gives dignity and worth inestimable. Inestimable to the feeble efforts of the most insignificant of us to make love the controlling principle of our daily lives. He's not saying sin should be ignored, should be denied. Peter's concerned with Christian behavior, of course, but he's concerned with Christian behavior or the behavior of Christians that destroys the community. Hey, we see it in Paul's love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. That means love does away with impatience. Right, husbands? Love is kind. It means love does away with unkindness. Love does not envy. It doesn't boast. It's not love is not arrogant. Love does away with arrogance. It's not rude. That's what Peter means when he says it covers a multitude of sins. It's the love he speaks of here. Speaks of in verse twenty-two. Chapter 1, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, 
love one another earnestly. The, the requirements of that love we see in chapter 2, verse 1. What, what does that love require? Chapter 2, verse 1. You put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, all slander. You replace chapter 3, verse 9. Don't repay evil for evil, but instead put blessing there. Don't repay pay reviling for reviling. On the contrary, bless. It's not this warm, fuzzy, kumbaya sort of love. You young people know what I mean when I say kumbaya. Maybe we were getting beyond that. If you don't, ask me after. It means treating each other in the church body and even the larger Christian community with a love that promotes and encourages unity and promotes and, uh, and it avoids behaviors that destroy community it, and avoids behaviors that destroy relationships. That's why he commands this kind of love. Because without it, there is potential that the community be broken by strife. Karen Jobes also says the fundamental characteristic that enables a Christian community to survive is the willingness and ability of its members to love in this way. And why is this so important? Why is this so important? You're going to answer my question. Why is this so important? Have you ever been in a church split? Raise your hand. Or a church fight? You you raise your hand. Okay. Why is this so important? You just answered. Plus, lack of love destroys our witness. They know we'll, we're his disciples by our love for one another. Wayne Grudem says, Where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even some large ones are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding and conflicts about to Satan's perverse delight. So as the time as the time of the end draws near, as the day of judgment looms closer, how important is it that we have the kind of love for one another that will encourage us to get rid of sin in our lives? And then he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I was studying this text the very moment my dad passed away. I'm pretty sure it wasn't the prospect of hearing another one of my sermons that sent him over the edge. But he wasn't doing well that day, so I stayed over at mom's house and I was sitting on the sofa. I was studying this text when I didn't hear any breathing anymore. 
And then for the next few days, my family and myself experienced nothing but love and pure hospitality from our church. And my extended family saw it and experienced it. And for that, I'm grateful. We're good at that when people die. Because hospitality is not possible without the kind of love that he calls for here in verse 8. These are commands because they're, these are, these are, all of these commands are commands because they're resources that we will need in our lives that I just experienced. Especially in a world where we're aliens and in a world that it'll be increasingly more difficult for us to live in. A hospitality that's gracious. The unusual use of this particular word uh, translated hospitality, philoxenos. It really means love of strangers. It's normally used in reference to a kindness that you show to people that you don't know. And what Peter is most likely talking about in his context is travelers, Christian travelers, and they're traveling through. There were no, there were no hotels. There was no Airbnb back in 2,000 years ago. There was, not, there, were no, there was nothing like that. And so a Christian traveler only had the choice of maybe a, a rare inn. And most inns back in those days were either houses of prostitution or they were just so few and far between that you couldn't get to them. So travelers, and remember, these are, these are exiles. These are the elect exiles, Peter calls them. Many traveling, getting away from persecution. And so he's saying, show hospitality. Welcome believers into your home. Now notice, this is un- we understand this to be believers. Look at verse 8. Keeping one another. Keep loving one another, he says. Then verse 9, show hospitality to one another. Look at verse 10. You've received a gift. Use it to serve one another. So he's talking about fellow believers, one another's. Paul speaks of it as well. But he broadens it in Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. We're supposed to do good to everyone. We're especially supposed to do it to one another. Peter may also be encouraging people to open their homes for the purpose of worship. There were no, there wasn't a church on every street corner 2,000 years ago. The church met in homes. Show hospitality, open up your home to the church so that they might worship and fellowship together. Only problem with that, you let the church body meet in your home. 
in those days of persecution, you might be inviting more persecution on your family. It wasn't easy. No, I'm not going to invite them into my house. There may be more persecution for my family. Let somebody else do it. And that's why he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. You've, you've heard this in your house before. Pastor Greg talked about marriage earlier. I'll just extend that conversation. You invited who? Are those family members that decide they like Charleston so much, they're going to stay another week? God bless them. Or when you invite somebody over, like, and you set the date, it's two weeks down the road. Two weeks seems like a long time. And the night before that day, why did we invite those people? Without grumbling. You show kindness with a begrudging spirit. I don't think that love we talked about is involved at this point. It becomes a duty. Only by placing a higher premium on, uh, on your brothers and sisters do your possessions or your convenience fall by the wayside. Some of you are good at this. Most of us aren't. Some of you haven't had anybody over for years, if ever. Either because your house is dirty or you can't cook. I heard John Piper say, this is a shock to me. Their Sunday dinner is always on paper plates. It's not a fancy meal. Every Sunday, Piper House, paper plates. They can invite anybody over right at the last minute. Pull out the plates, have a sandwich, frozen pizza, or whatever. You did add, chances are people won't stay too long, I hope. But that's what he and Noel, that's what they do. That's what they've always done. You turn to that visitor sitting behind you. Couple just moved into town. College student. Young couple getting ready to have a baby. Single person that just moved here doesn't have any doesn't have any family here. Oh, don't invite your regular friends. You've already had that conversation many times over. Invite somebody you don't know. Come over. Come over and eat on our fine paper plates. Zero sacrifice to slap some peanut butter and jelly on a piece of bread and enjoy good conversation. Somebody who needs it. Zero sacrifice and you're being obedient at the same time. Now, hospitality can be a sacrifice. That requires a greater commitment. But start somewhere. Just start somewhere. Jesus told his disciples, 
Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you and naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Hospitality. And then service. Verse 10. Each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength God supplies. Finally, there are those there are other spiritual gifts besides hospitality. Must be used in order for the body to serve each other. It's the same word that Paul uses, charisma. Um, Paul uses it in a general sense. He uses the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That general, the free gift of God is the same word. He uses it in his list of many gifts in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4. That's the word that Peter uses here, as each has received a gift, the gift of God's grace. And the implication here, or it's pretty clear here, each one has received a gift. I believe here and taught throughout the New Testament is that every Christian, now Christian hear me, every Christian has a spiritual gift. You've received a spiritual gift if you are a brother or sister in Christ. Now listen, I'm going to say it again. If you're a Christian, God has gifted you. And it's to be used in service to your brothers and your sisters. And you say, I can't teach. What are you talking about? I can't preach. What are you talking about? I can't sing. Well, that's pretty lame. You can't get some paper plates down and make a sandwich? You can't call a homebound member on the phone? Hopefully you can pray. Hopefully you can write a note to somebody who's sick. There's no Christian who doesn't have a spiritual gift. And we flounder and we make announcements needing volunteers and people to serve all the time because of your disobedience. You have a valuable service. And it's in various ways that we are to serve. And we serve with power. It's not like we just serve on our on our own, whoever speaks, one who speaks the word of God, oracles of God, whoever serves, one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Just He mentions two things here, and these two are very important. Speak and serve, which every believer should do, realizing that, that, that 
both of those, speaking and serving, are just a manifestation of God's good grace. You speak as if you're speaking the words of God. Preachers and teachers and counselors, you certainly should pay attention to this. Speaking God's words supplied by God's grace. The gift, it's a grace gift. Paul mentions this in Titus 2, 7 and 8. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Teachers, heed that call. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. And you serve with the strength that God supplies by His grace. With the ability, strength and power supplied by God Himself. Paul says, Romans 12:11, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. That goes back to that famous quote I mentioned to you earlier. Casual Christians create casualties. Be fervent. Serve the Lord. Paul reflects that entire same thought as well that Peter gives us about speaking and serving when he says in Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do in word or deed, word or deed, the same thought, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. We do all that service. We serve you. We serve each other. So that God may be glorified. Oh, people say your church is so friendly. Those greeters met us at the door, had smiling faces. You open your doors to the community for elections and for different meetings that we have in our community. What a wonderful church. Friends, I want to encourage you to quit saying thank you. Or maybe you can say thank you, but quickly turn around. We do this for the glory of God. That's why we serve. Thank you. To God be the glory. Listen, we greeted you when you came in the door this morning. Not so that you'd think we were nice. We are nice. But we greeted you at the door this morning for the glory of God. This entire passage is tied together so wonderfully as he concludes this section. Prayer is essential to empower the church to love. He says, have the mind of Christ, thinking rightly and praying in a way that's consistent with the will of God. This provides you, the church, a way to love each other. And one way, he mentions just one way that we show love is by hospitality. 
And hospitality is one of the spiritual gifts. Spiritual giftedness is how we function. It's how the church functions for the glory of God. And then Peter tacks on this little doxology. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Glory speaks about as something that can only come from believers. Because only Christians bear his name. Only Christians live in his name. Only Christians serve in his name. Only believers in the Lord Jesus Christ can give God glory in this sense. And even though that life might invite persecution, no matter what our, what our circumstances, what we're going through, as the culture implodes... As persecution increases, we have the resources to live out a life of victory that only Jesus Christ provides. And He only provides it within our community. He only provides it in this, in this fellowship with brothers and sisters. He only provides it in this body. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, He provides it for you today if you trust Him as your Lord and Savior. And when we serve, when we show hospitality, and when we love, God gets the glory. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. We're going to sing a hymn in a moment. I encourage you this day if some of this talk about Jesus and his church is strange to you and you've got questions, Pastor Greg and others will be in the back to receive you while we sing. If you need someone to pray with you or you need to respond in any way during this hymn, we encourage you to make your way back there while we sing. And invite you to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior this day. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your church. Use us to serve each other. May we feel the weight of our disobedience. And become what you have created us to become. Again, for your glory. In Jesus' name.